The clank of machines move the Soviet arsenal as the end of World War II pushes the Soviet Union as one of the two major superpowers. After Stalin's modernization and five-year plans and the great patriotic war that killed millions, the Soviet Union is looking at an extremely good industrial society. And so much can be achieved for the new communist state, and that is space. It is also known that the United States played a catch-up game when it came to the space race. But we here at Clio History have a slightly different understanding of the space race and when it started and what opportunities the United States could have had. Hello and welcome back to episode 8 of Cleocast. Uh, this one's going to be about the X-15. I'm RC. And I'm Matt. And uh, well, we're just going to get right into it. So we're at the end of World War II, but... It's nice to zoom out a bit and know that aircrafts are only 45, 50 years old at this point. And they went from tiny, made by bicycle makers on the coast of North Carolina, to jet engines. And the large industrial powers and the victors of World War II were victors and spoils with jet engines and modern aircraft they had their own designs and whatever they could get from the nazis this is a split where ideology now actually matters although they were allies only a few short years earlier the united states and soviet union keep raising the stakes and raising tensions as nuclear arms are now in play and there can never be a total war without total destruction of the human race. The U.S. in particular, but most of the Allies, now have a bulk surplus of well-trained pilots with lots of flying hours and lots of experience, along with a newly developed military-industrial complex because the United States and the Soviet Union ramped up industrial production in order to win World War II. Now, the U.S. did have a large industrial might before, but the Soviet Union has new five-year plan factories. Now, these need workers and need something to do. The United States turned to cars, but the Soviet Union and its need for zero unemployment and to maintain the communist regime and make sure everyone does have jobs, you need to have some sort of goal to go to. And a good propaganda hit is developing a good state-ran space plan. And this would work hand-in-hand between their ICBM program for intercontinental ballistic missiles and going to space because they're one and the same. Because the Soviet Union is treating this as a one and the same system. But that wasn't the case for the United States. It seemed to be a very ad hoc situation in which we can go ahead and do a little deep dive right now. The end of World War II saw the United States as the only undestroyed country in the major powers group. See, all of Europe had been devastated. The Soviet Union was devastated. And while they controlled most of Eastern Europe, they still had a large period of rebuilding. 
the U.S. had never been in a position like this before. I'm, I'm not sure if any country really had where they had just, you know, gone through the largest war in human history and come out relatively unscathed and were able to, you know, do developments like the Marshall Pro- Program to, uh, you know, just ship money into uh, Europe to rebuild and kind of gain soft power. So the United States, with this giant economic and world power, suddenly had a lot of money to throw in the programs, such as their plane development, because jet engines were a thing. They had been invented in the United States and were implemented into the P-80 shooting star in 1944. The UK had also invented them, and so had the Germans. But the United States was the only country with enough money to really kind of throw money at the problem to kind of see where they could go. There was this hypothetical line, the speed of sound, which people knew, okay, this is the speed of sound, but they didn't know whether it was breakable, whether you could go faster than it. Some people thought that it would kill you. You know, you wouldn't be able to get air in your lungs. You'd be going so fast. But the U.S. saw these new jet engines and saw the problem and were like, hey, you know, maybe we could try to break this sound barrier. Now, other countries did at the same time, try to solve the problem as well. But the United States are the ones who succeeded first, and that's who we're focusing on right here. So in 1947, they developed the Bell X-1, which uh, by this point they'd figured out that rocket engines were a lot better to go fast than jet engines because jet engines were still in their infancy and weren't able to get into the, effic- the efficiency and speed required. So the Bell X-1... Uh, broke the sound barrier and led to multiple other projects like the BLX-2 and X-3, both of which were uh, kind of disasters. Like, they weren't complete failures, but the X-2 did kill two pilots and never really achieved any of its major goals in the construction, such as achieving Mach 2 or really anything. So they just kind of scrapped those in favor of a much more ambitious plan, the X-15. So a dynamic of the late 40s that the entire world had to deal with is the United States had a doomsday weapon, the atomic bomb, which they showed off dropping two on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. The United States theorized that the Soviet Union would take about 20 years to catch up with them, but also the United States had poor security when it came to protecting the bombs that it had and the knowledge it had working on these bombs, like the scientists and engineers. Some even had Soviet and communist leanings. So, in 1949, the Soviet Union detonates their first atomic weapon, nicknamed by United States intelligence as Joe One. This changes the game. It isn't fears that a bunch of Soviet tanks will fly over the border in Germany and it's up to the new Bundeswehr and the United States troops still stationed in western Germany to defend no it is now a nuclear war that is death for all involved but shortly after that Stalin dies and after a brief political series of fighting and infighting Khrushchev comes to power for real with legitimate hold over what the Soviet Union would be. And the attempt to de-Stalinize 
and tone down the aggressive terror that the Soviet Union had gone through was extremely important to Khrushchev. And Khrushchev wanted international prestige and international respect. Later in the 1950s and 1959, he would then argue with then-Vice President Richard Nixon over the standards and living of the Soviet Union and the United States, in which he said, soon we will catch up to you, then we will be with you, and then we'll wave bye-bye. Khrushchev had no qualms in catching up technologically, industrially, and in living standards to the United States. Khrushchev was also famous for designing the Khrushchevska, which was a five-story cheap apartment building that could be built quickly but could provide a pretty high standard of living for people who were just devastated through a world war. Granted, to the modern American eye, that would be, you know, oh, you know, commie blocks, they're dumb, they suck, but they are something that those people in the new Soviet Union at the time, because the Soviet Union is only 30 years old, has never seen before. They grew up probably in shacks as peasants and then fought through a massive, brutal invasion by the Nazis, and now they have a very nice apartment for the standards of the time. The living standards in the Soviet Union under Khrushchev were increasing, and the ability and power of the Soviet Union was increasing. They were looking at the height of their power, and there's no need for terror anymore because they know that they are better. Now, this would change, and terror would come back through uh, further use of the KGB and internal ministries, but at this time, the Soviet Union saw a future that saw them winning, and winning hard. The National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics was the United States' premier aerospace research institution. It was ostensibly military-based. Uh, it was designed during World War II to develop aerospace technology, you know, check out jet engines and Primarily, it was just to develop military technology, but after the uh, missile program that the Soviets were developing, as we touched upon earlier, President Eisenhower wanted a more civilian approach to kind of juxtapose the Soviets' military approach. The NACA was a military organization, and it was heralding the X-Plane program, which were you know, research planes, but they were supposed to be developing for military purposes. Eisenhower and his administration developed the National Aeronautics and Space Administration in 1958, or NASA as we might know it today. This was a civilian organization. It was a branch of the government, but it was not under any military banner. The aim was to peaceably develop space and aerospace technology while not having any overall military uh, connotations. That being said, during the United States' early uh, rocket development, they did have to use intercontinental ballistic missiles the same way the Soviets did, because they were starting from scratch, but the Air Force was not. So the X-Plane program switched from the NACA to NASA, and 
NASA didn't necessarily like the X-Plane program because it was expensive and they didn't start it. You know, they wanted a prestige program that they could claim full ownership of that didn't have any prior administration that was in charge of it. Nevertheless, they couldn't cancel the program. So the X-Planes and the X-15 kept developing as usual, except for, you know, maybe some slight delays. Maybe they didn't quite mention it as much as they mentioned their other programs, like one Werner von Braun's pet project, the Mercury program, which was designed to use these ICBMs I mentioned earlier to launch astronauts into space on capsules. Uh, Think of it like a small chair with a metal wall that's airtight, because that's pretty much all it was at this point in time. You barely had room for the astronaut in there. Von Braun was a, uh, I guess, reformed, not really, Nazi, who was in charge of NASA at this time. He had been taking an Operation Paperclip, and he was obsessed with rockets. He thought they were the coolest thing, especially the ones he built that he uh, launched into Britain to kill civilians. Uh, Either way, he was our guy now. You know, he's our German. And he was going to be damned if he let any planes take the spotlight. One thing I haven't mentioned yet that might have uh, influenced the development of NASA in 1958 was in 1957 when the Soviet Union successfully launched Sputnik, the first satellite. Now, the United States had been trying for a couple of years to launch a satellite. Vanguard 1 was the one they successfully launched a couple months after Sputnik, but most of their uh, attempts had been met in utter failure. Now, Sputnik might not necessarily seem that important to us today because, you know, we have a lot flashier things going on. But to people in 1957, as author Joseph M. Goldson puts it in Outer Space and World Politics from the year 1963, quote, the only other event in recent history that can match Sputnik in general public awareness was the explosion of the atomic bomb in 1945, end quote. Now, granted, this was before a lot of events that we might think of when we think of uh, general public awareness. But, you know, the guy in 1957, the Soviets are winning. I mean, look, they've got a satellite up there that's looking down on the United States. What else could they put up there? Nuclear weapons? And where's the United States? We don't have anything like that. All of our rockets are exploding on the pad. With the 60s approaching quickly, the Soviets are getting ahead in the space race with Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space in 1960. And other than the Nettleland catastrophe, or Nettleland disaster, which is an explosion that happened in 1960 right after Yuri Gagarin, the Soviets have a pretty high success rate when it comes to launching rockets into space with capsules that land on the ground and are producing the first cosmonauts. The panic that happened with Sputnik just increases drastically when it comes to Yuri Gagarin going to space. And although Yuri Gagarin did a lot of work to attempt to bridge the gap between Soviet and American relations and had a pretty strong relationship when it came to other astronauts when the United States started getting them into space, such as Alan Shepard, 
the United States was behind, and they were behind drastically in the normal conventional understanding of space. The average American was seeing rockets, and they wanted rockets. And there is a man in NASA, who was also a Nazi war criminal, by the way, who also loved the idea of rockets. But the United States was working on a project that could have gotten more astronauts into space and beaten Alan Shepard's date or moved Alan Shepard's date forward. The United States was thinking about going to space to beat the Soviet Union. And that is where, at Rice University, John F. Kennedy made the famous promise that we will go to the moon within this decade of the 1960s. And although the United States had very little actual space-time when it came to that speech, Alan Shepard had simply just made one little shoot-up, there was something that could actually do what needed to be done to get into space. It's just the politics that came with early NASA was limiting the human invention that was the X-15. So the X-15 had started development in 1955, which was three years before Sputnik. And it didn't actually fly until 58, where it started doing unpowered test flights with pilot Scott Crossfield uh, flying them. It didn't actually have the proper engine, the XLR-99, that was designed to take it to the speeds that its proposal was uh, suggesting it could make, but it made do with the uh, XLR-1 engine in the interim period. Now see, in 1955, when it had been proposed, they had an idea to mount it kind of space shuttle style, if you think like that, on a Navajo rocket. This would have allowed it to go to orbit and you know, effectively work like the capsules that were launching. But this program was killed in 1958 when NASA and one Von Braun took over and wanted their Mercury program to uh, take the forefront instead. This would have probably gotten astronauts into orbit, not just, you know, suborbital hops like Yuri Gagarin or Alan Shepard, but into orbit in at least 1960. Because remember, this is the early uh, half of the 20th century, and they can do things a lot faster because they don't have health and safety standards. So when they say they're going to get a rocket into orbit, they can actually do it. But this program was killed. The X-15 was not. And it finally made it into, well, what the Air Force considers space in 1960, after the XLR-99 engine was finally delivered. Yuri Gagarin didn't make his famous flight until 1961. The X-15 was able to do this in 1960. But see, the general public barely knew about the X-15. It was getting like 12th page in the New York Times articles written about it that were like a paragraph long versus, you know, the Mercury 7 getting front page treatment and multiple paragraphs about every pilot. You know, you never hear about... uh the brave as any pilots of the X-15, such as William Knight or John B. McKay or Scott Crossfield, made famous in The Right Stuff, which is a great movie, uh, or William uh, Knight, who still holds the record for the fastest X-15 and fastest fixed-wing flight. I actually have a quote from him. When I was writing a paper in college about the X-15, uh, I had tweeted at one Chuck Yeager to ask him if he had any uh, insight onto it. 
And the only insight he had from me about the X-15 was uh, William Pete did Mach 6 landed was burning. I'm not quite sure what he meant by that, but he probably was burning while landing because that's how this thing operated. Now into the broader argument that we laid out in this, had the X-15 not been thrown aside, we would probably have a little bit of a different perception of the Cold War and the space race in general. Because, see, the Soviets didn't really have an equivalent program. The United States broke the sound barrier first, and then the Soviet Union was just kind of focusing on rockets because, you know, the sound barrier had already been broken. There's no real other point. The United States had its X-plane program, which was you know, breaking airspeed records, breaking altitude records for fixed-wing flight, which wouldn't get broken again until the space shuttle in the 70s. And then it was also doing research program-type stuff at hypersonic speeds. And all this could have been used to assuage the public fears about U.S. Uh, failures in the rockets. But it wasn't. It was buried because... Werner von Braun liked his rockets, and the X-15 was made by other people. One X-15 pilot that you might actually know is a young Neil Armstrong who flew in the early parts of the program. He was with the NASA organization, even though this was a joint venture between the Air Force, the Navy, and NASA. Neil Armstrong was one of the early astronauts, or at that point pilots, going over to the National Aeronautics and Space Administration to explore these new possibilities. Now, Neil got a lot of experience from the X-15, which, you know, you know him as the Apollo missions guy and the first man on the moon. But without the expertise that he developed with the X-15, they couldn't have done those very intricate landings that they did on the moon and did to joint up with capsules. Neil Armstrong was an extremely important astronaut who got his start with the X-15, and that is something that we need to really focus on. Now, the X-15 kept flying until 1967, which is probably a lot longer than people think because it made it all the way to the Apollo program. It didn't get canned immediately. It kept going until it killed someone. Now, near the end of the program, it didn't really have much else to do with its original design. So they started testing something called a scramjet, which is effectively just a really, really powerful jet engine that can go like incredible speeds. The X-15 was already designed to go, you know, like Mach 6, Mach 7, Mach 8, so it was the perfect test bed. But the issue was it had been designed with 1950s technology, not with the scramjet in mind. It had these short little stubby wings. It was launched from B-52. It landed on skids on a dry salt flat. And they really probably should have developed a new plane to test this technology. But they didn't because there was no money for it. We were going to the moon. Who cares about planes? Now, Michael J. Adams was the pilot at the time, and he pretty much just had no chance. I mean, the plane had these giant tanks added to under the wing, so the entire flight profile was thrown off, 
and you know it went into a tailspin and was unrecoverable at the speeds it was at it had an ejection system but it was only rated for Mach 4 so and it, it had never actually been tested they just kind of figured it would work so he had no hope as soon as it was uncontrollable it just it can't be saved it's think the F104 starfighter super fast Mach 3 interceptor with these tiny short wings and the second it starts to lose control it just the pilot's dead you pass out so quickly the tragic death of Michael Adams was uh, quite horribly overshadowed by the media in 1967, only a few months later, the Apollo 1 fire would happen, tragically killing three astronauts, Ed White, Gus Grissom, and Roger Chaffee. This is a tragedy for any space fan, but also it completely overshadowed a large-scale space project that killed Michael Adams. This is reiterating the issue that the X-15 has had for years where the New York Times and other major newspapers front-page news on the Apollo 1 astronauts dying. But when it came to the X-15, it was relegated to the back pages, sitting on 14 when it came down to it. Now that's the just general overview of the history of the X-15. But let's get more into specifics about how the thing operated, because I think that's interesting. So it was made of a substance called Inconel X, which was developed to be heat resistant and really durable. But it was also heavy as hell and incredibly difficult to work with because it was heat resistant and very durable. And in the 50s, uh, those were properties that were hard to come by because material science had not really been that developed. So they were created out of almost an entirely solid structure of Inconel X, and they only ended up building three of them because of the Mercury program. All the funding was diverted, for the most part, from the production of these planes. So it had short little stubby wings, as I mentioned earlier, which were really effective at high speed, but as you can imagine, not quite as effective at low speed which meant that when it was coming in for a landing, which, as I mentioned earlier, it had to do on a salt plat, salt plane in California, it would have to come in for landing at incredibly fast speeds, which meant that any mistake could be fatal. In fact, there was only ever one actual issue with the landing, and the pilot survived, so it had a really good track record for these landings, which it could not do on wheels due to this high speed. It had to land on skids. It was not the most pleasant experience, if you can imagine. So it had these short stubby wings, but they obviously wouldn't work in space, so it had reaction control thrusters, or little jets that would push out propellant while in space to allow it to maneuver. See. The capsules that had been launching were, you know, just capsules that held a single guy, whereas the X-15 around the same period was a plane. You know, it could maneuver, the pilot could maneuver it to do experiments, and then he could land on the runway where it would be refurbished, but because of its Inconel X design, it wouldn't have to really have that much work done, and it could be out on the pad uh, months later, whereas the capsules were single-use. 
Overall, the three X-15s constructed flew 191 times, performing various, you know, experiments at high speed and high altitude, with a return time that couldn't quite be matched with orbital flight. And granted, it couldn't go as high as orbit. In fact, Alan Shepard's first launch went higher than uh, any X-15 ever went. But the, even though they went higher, that didn't mean that the X-15 couldn't do things that they couldn't do because it went uh, controllably higher. You know, they could point it in a different direction, they could rotate it, and they could land it, as I mentioned. So the scramjet program, as they were developing it, kind of got canceled after Michael Adams died. The entire program did in 1968. We landed on the moon a year later. You know, space planes were kind of relegated to the dustbin of history. In fact, I didn't mention this earlier, but I'll mention it now. There was a successor planned in the 50s, the X-20 Dinosaur, which was supposed to be a single-stage-to-orbit space plane that would effectively do what they were trying to do with the scramjet program, but it would actually be designed for it. And it got canceled, you guessed it, when uh, Werner von Braun took over and diverted all the funding to his rocket. Uh, so it never did get a successor until the 70s when they started to come up with the idea for the space shuttle. See, the space shuttle took a lot more from the X-15 than it did from the Apollo program because the X-15 was doing effectively what the shuttle would do. It went up into orbit and it had wings and it would land on a runway. In fact, Frank Borman, who was an Apollo astronaut, put it, quote, ships like the Challenger, the space shuttle, borrowed very little, if anything, from the entire Apollo program. They were experimental crafts designed for our areas Apollo had hardly touched. End quote. And that's from uh, Alan J. Levine's The Missile and the Space Race, which is a very good book written in 1994. Even though the X-15 had been killed, the concepts and research it had pioneered were not. Honestly, it is a shame that the American space program with NASA and all the people in charge didn't really have the foresight to see the X-15 as it really was, a potential to do something completely different from the Soviets and to get people in the space. It was possible. As was said earlier, you could have strapped the X-15 to a Navajo rocket. It had potential and it was ready to go. All that stood in its way was a Nazi and the public image of the understanding that the Soviets were doing rockets, so we must do rockets too. And when you see a rocket, that seems very space-age. Everyone understands the concept of a plane, and a plane going higher was something that was going on all the time. It was the jet age. The age of airliners were in as well, and really, when you think about those high distances up in space, you start losing track on the thousands of feet difference. So what's the difference between a new Boeing aircraft that is flying you across the country for Pan Am than it is the difference between this weird X-15 that you read about on page 14 of the New York Times? There really isn't in the mind of an average American. But to people who understand and look at the actual details, the X-15 is way above that small Boeing aircraft flying in the sky, taking people from L.A. to New York. 
the X-15 had the potential, and it is frankly a shame that they did not go with it. NASA had an opportunity, and it was fumbled. Granted, they did get to the moon, but what could have happened if we had a proto-space shuttle in the 1950s when, you know, the space shuttle came out in the 1970s? We could have been 20 years further ahead in our current space technology if this was focused on. But this is getting to the realm of make-believe and, well, what-ifs. And we aren't really focusing on what-if history. We're just trying to intrigue you and show you what could have been and also know that history has rhymes. It isn't really repeated, but there are rhymes when it comes to the future and the past. So keep your eyes out for the small hidden space program and make sure that that little idea could be the next big thing and understand that maybe it might fail like the X-15, but it is up to you to make sure that these things stay in the historical and public narrative. And that is our task for you from Clio History. I'm Matt. And I'm RC. Subscribe to us on wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter. We have to self-promote. I hate it. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful day.